Well, good morning, guys. How's everybody doing? Fun driving in the rain today. It's either it's either ice or rain. You know, we just can't seem to get just a nice morning to drive in. But glad you're here. Uh, a couple of things. There is your uh, devotionary reading for next week is on the table. If I sent it out yesterday in a P, as a PDF to, with the email. Uh, if you don't want to print it out, they're printed out and there for you. There's also a uh, handout, just a two-sided handout on Leverite marriage. And you're like, what is that? Well, it'll tell you. Uh, we're going to get into that a little bit this morning because it's uh, in chapter 37 or 38. And so this is going to go into greater detail. So that handout is out, out there as well. So if you want to avail yourself of those, you can. But uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into chapter 37 and chapter 38 of the book of Genesis. Well, Father, we come to you this morning. We're grateful for this time to study your word together. Thank you for um, the Holy Spirit inspiring Moses to write this book so many years ago, and it's still applicable today, and we can learn from the lives of these men. And so, Father, would you open our, our hearts and help us to hear what you would have us to hear and Lord, would you convict us, challenge us, encourage us, change us, that we might be truly men of God who live for you and who declare your glory to all those around us. Lord, thank you for this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And just a free uh, uh, reminder, this is Valentine's Day, so uh, don't, don't forget, yeah. I'm not going to hand you roses to give out to your wife, but you don't forget or you'll regret it. All right, so we're going to look at two chapters, and we're going to cover 37 and 38. Mitchell covered chapter 36 last week, and we're going to see yet again uh, a story about two brothers. Uh, this is a kind of a recurring theme, as we'll see in just a second, all throughout the book of Genesis. But last week, we covered Jacob and Esau. Mainly, Esau, from the standpoint, is, it was his genealogy. Chapter 6 is the genealogy of Esau. Uh, but you can't look at Esau without comparing him to Jacob, which is exactly what Mitchell did last week. And he brought up this issue of the Goy and the Goyim, the nation and the nations. Um, Israel is to be the nation, the chosen people of God who will bless all the other nations of the world. And so you saw that last week in this, this lengthy genealogy. It's, it's the longest chapter in the book of Genesis, a genealogy. And yet it's there for a reason. And it's to expose the idea that with the people of God, the chosen people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are the nation, the chosen people, and they will bless the nations. So it's really important for us to see this. And one of the things that's going to come out, I hope this morning as we look at this, uh, these two chapters, is this really isn't about two brothers, it's about the sovereignty of God. Now the sovereignty of God is a difficult topic, any way you, you look at it. Uh, because it brings up the issue of free will. If God is in control of all things at all times, and that's what the sovereignty of God, the doctrine, infers, then what do we do with free will? Is he making people do the things they do? Is, does he make you sin? Does he make these people sin, as we'll see with Judah? Uh, what is the sovereignty of God? Well, what I want us to see is that all throughout these stories, no matter what's going on, the good, the bad, and the ugly, God is in control. Now, sometimes we don't see it initially, but if we look back in retrospect, we do. So we know that he's going to bless the nations through 
Isaac and Jacob, the descendants of Abraham, and not through Ishmael and Esau. That's not how he chose to do it. And we can sit there and go, well, why? You know, you can ask God why all you want, but here's what I'll tell you. He's not obligated to tell you why. Uh, Sometimes he does, and the scriptures are full of, of situations where he explains the reasoning behind his decision. But oftentimes, more often than not, he never tells us the why. We just have to trust that our God knows what he's doing, and we're going to see that in these stories. See, we have the benefit of looking backwards. We can look back and we can see not just the book of Genesis, but all the way to the book of Revelation. The people of Israel, who this book was originally written for, those people who are waiting to cross into the land of promise, cross over the Jordan, they don't have the New Testament. They don't know about Jesus. They don't know about redemption in terms of one man, the Son of God, taking on human flesh, dying on a cross for theirs. They don't know anything about all those things. And yet Moses wrote the book for them. And Moses doesn't really talk about any of those things. But we can look back and we can see that God chose not to do this through Ishmael. He made it really clear, I'm not going to do this through Ishmael. Abraham wanted him to use Ishmael because guess what? Isaac hadn't shown up yet, right? We've studied this portion. He thought, well, you said you're going to give me a descendant. I've got Ishmael through Hagar. Let it be him. And God goes, no, it's not going to be him. Here's what he said. As for Ishmael, I will bless him also, just as you have asked. I will make him extremely fruitful and multiply his descendants. He will become the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. In other words, I will bless him, but my covenant will be confirmed with Isaac. And again, we can sit there and go, well, why? Because that's the way God's ordained it. That's God's plan. That's God's great redemptive plan. His his plan for the salvation of mankind is going to go through Jacob, not Ishmael. What, What about Esau? We saw this last week. Here's what God told Rebekah when she had those two infants in her womb, those twin boys. He says, the sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other. There's that goyim issue again. And your older son will serve your younger son. Now, this is before the boys were born, right? God is telling this mother, this pregnant woman, that you have two sons within you. One, the older one, is going to serve the younger one. Totally against the norm, the way things are done in that society. So God has said, I'm going to choose Isaac over Ishmael. I'm going to choose Jacob over Esau. And we know from the story of especially Jacob and Esau that the parents are going to get involved and try to change God's plan, try to do it their way, and it doesn't turn out too well. But again, what's going on here? God is trying to show the people of Israel, and he's trying to show you and I that I have a plan, and I'm going to work that plan. And you need to trust that plan. Can you, you, you can only imagine them standing on the shore of the Jordan. The spies have come back. They, they've gone through the land, and they've come back with a story that, hey, the place is fruitful. It truly is a land flowing with milk and honey, but there's giants in the land. And they're going, man, I, I don't know if this is really God's will. I don't know if we should be going over there. We're not big enough, bad enough to conquer those people, so let's just not go. And that's the decision they made. See, they weren't trusting in the sovereignty of God, so this is written for their benefit. 
And it's written for our benefit that we might understand that God's ways are not our ways. God, God does things in really bizarre, strange ways. And if you've studied the scriptures very long, you realize that that's true, that his ways are not my ways. He, he will always do it differently than what I expect. Listen to this. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, so here we are back to the story of those two boys in the womb, Neither one of them had done nothing either good or bad. In other words, they're in the womb. They're infants. They can't have sinned yet. They haven't committed any sin. We know they're going to be born with sin natures because of the sin of Adam and Eve. But it says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him, God, who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. And then it clarifies it. Look at this. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That passage has always bothered me because it, it sounds like God is this uh, discriminatory um, being who just chooses, well, I'm going to hate you, I'm going to love you. It's not unlike Jacob and his wife deciding Jacob's going to love Esau and Rebecca's going to love who? The other son. You know, it, it's we got to be really careful when we look at this, what's going on. It says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. It's not saying that he truly hated Esau. He didn't despise Esau. But in terms of his divine plan, his grand redemptive plan, he's chosen to work through one. He's chosen his will. I don't understand it fully. I can't explain it fully. But this is the way of God when it concerns redemption. And if you think about it, guys, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, the whole book, all 66 books, is pointing to one thing, the redemption of mankind. That's the story. It's not about these isolated stories about Jacob and Esau and Isaac. It's about the redemption of mankind from Genesis all the way to Revelation. First creation, new creation. First Adam, second Adam. That's what this is all about. So, it's about God's ways. I love what Romans 9 says. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. See, at no point should we as believers be pointing our finger at God and saying, you are in unjust, you are unfair, you're unrighteous because of the way you do things. The problem is we do say that. Maybe not in those terms. But we say things like, God, why are you doing this to me? This isn't fair. I don't need this. I don't want this. I don't deserve this. And we're basically saying, you don't know what you're doing. And yet he does know what he's doing. I may not get it now, but if you're like me and you got enough gray hair, you can look back and go, I hated that point in my life, but God was all over that point in my life. I didn't like being on the verge of bankruptcy, but, but you know what? I grew because I was on the verge of bankruptcy because God used it to teach me about me and also teach me about him. So this idea that God is unjust is just not true. I love what Deuteronomy says. He, God, is the rock. His deeds are perfect. Everything he does is just and fair. He is a faithful God who does no wrong. How just and upright is he? And we need to remember that. We need to embrace that. We need to revel in that, that our God is just, fair, righteous, and good in all that he does. 
And the reason we need to know that and believe that and remind ourselves of that is because you're going to face something probably today that paints a different picture of God. Something's going to happen in your life, maybe to a friend, a coworker, somebody in your family, where you're going to go, I don't think this is right. And you're going to have to step back and go, wait a minute. My good is God. My God is good, just, righteous in all that he does because he's sovereign over all things. So as we look at these stories, and particularly chapter 37 and chapter 38, I want us to keep that in the back of our mind because all of these stories of these patriarchs are evidence of, proof of the fact that God is sovereign. If we take them in isolation, if we separate them out and just look at them as stories, we don't really see it so much. We, we, we almost look at them and go, well, that's not really fair. That doesn't seem right. Why did he let that happen? And particularly as we study from this week forward, the life of Joseph. I, I read the life of Joseph and I go, man, it sucks to be Joseph. Why would God do this to this kid? Why would God allow all the stuff to happen to this kid who doesn't seemingly deserve it and yet guess what? God has a plan and God's working the plan. It doesn't make sense if you take it out of the overall context of God's grand redemptive plan. But if you keep going back to God's always had a reason for everything that's happened, then you begin to trust him more for all that has not yet happened. So all of these stories are going to be reminders of what? The faithfulness of God. I love what God says about himself. My thoughts are not your, like your thoughts. And I'm really glad that his thoughts are not like my thoughts. He also says, my ways are far beyond anything you could ever imagine. And I, the older I get, the more I realize how true that really is. His ways are not like my ways. He says, my ways are higher than your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. He is above me. He is all-knowing. He's omniscient, omniscient. He knows the end. He knows exactly what he's doing every moment of every day. And we need to trust him in that. And that's what these stories teach us. So let's look at this. End of chapter 36, it says, Esau, the father of Edom, according his descendants, according to their dwelling places, lived in the land of their possession. And this is what um, Mitchell covered last week. They're living down in that southern region called Edom. And God gave it to them. That's where they live. The, these are the nations Esau's part of the nations. They're not the chosen people. It's not how God has chosen to do his plan. And his grand plan is that they're going to live down there. And they're going to be prosperous down there. And they're going to have kings and chiefs. And all of that's great in their land. But then it picks up in chapter 37 and it changes course. Remember, this is a transitional chapter, chapter 36. And it leads to this. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings. So I'll Esau and his descendants are down there in Edom and they're prospering and they've got chiefs and they've got princes and they've got kings and they, they are growing. Something else is happening. This is at the same time. Jacob is still living in the land of his father's sojournings, which is an emphasis on the fact that they're sojourning. They're, they're still not living in land that belongs to them. They're strangers. They're aliens. They're just passing through. Edomites settling prospering, part of God's plan. Israelites, not the same story. They're living in this land, the land of Canaan that does not yet belong to them. And I think it's fascinating how we've looked over and over again at this idea that Jacob has had his name 
changed to Israel, but Moses rarely uses that name when describing Jacob. Why? Because he's still not living like Israel, let God rule. He's still got some problems with autonomy, self-rule, wanting to do it his way, and we're going to see that today. So what's going on here? They're, they're living up in Canaan. They still don't own any property to speak of. They, they own a few little plots of land, but they really don't represent a great and mighty nation yet. It says, these are the generations of Jacob. I, I want to take a, a little bit of time just to review what that means. We've seen this term, these are the generations of, for, for many chapters now. It's all throughout the book. These are the generations of, and we always attach it to a, a genealogy. Uh, that's what we saw in chapter 36, the genealogy of Esau. So 13 times in the book of Genesis, this phrase is used. But it's not always followed by a genealogy. And it, it doesn't always mean these are the generations of. It can sometimes be, be mean this is, this is the, the happenings uh, this is what came next. It's, it's the Hebrew word, teledah. And so it doesn't just mean, hey, get ready, I'm going to share you a really boring genealogy. It's here's what happened to Jacob and all those who came after him. Here's what took place next. That's literally how it can be translated. This is what happened next. What happened to Esau? Chapter 36 tells us. What happens to Jacob? That's what this chapter is going to tell us. But it's interesting that it's going to tell us not about Jacob, it's going to tell us about Joseph. Because look at what it says. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. It starts out saying, this is what happened to Jacob, and it starts talking about Joseph. Why? Because it's all about descendants. See, Jacob's going to die eventually. He, he's you know, going to be just like Abraham, Isaac. He's going to die, and it's going to continue on through his descendants, in particular, Joseph. So now we're entering into the, the part of the book of Genesis that we're probably the most familiar with, the story of Joseph. And it starts out when he's 17 years old. Moses, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is now introducing us to a character who's going to be incredibly important, probably more important than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because of the role that he's going to play. Chapter 36, we saw what happened to Esau. Now we're going to see what happened to Jacob through Joseph. Joseph's going to be key. He's going to be huge. He's a fulcrum point in the whole story about what's going to happen to the people of Israel who really don't yet exist. They're just the family, the small family of Jacob at this point. Chapter 38, we're going to see what happened to Jacob through the life of another son, Judah. And what's really fascinating is how these two sons are going to be juxtaposed one against the other. Much like Jacob and Esau, now we're going to see Joseph and Judah juxtaposed against one another. So it goes on and says, he, Joseph, was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, who were actually concubines. Uh, they were given to Jacob by Leah and by Rachel in order that he might get them pregnant and have sons. But it says he was a boy with their... Her, these two women's sons, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, this story is going to begin to unpack the life of Joseph, who we know is 17 years old at this point. And it's, it's going to paint a not-so-rosy picture of the family. 
and particularly Joseph. Joseph is going to sound like one of those kids you love to hate. He's just kind of obnoxious. He's he's going to be the favorite child, and he's going to wear that like a badge of honor, and it's going to irritate the snot out of his brothers, that he's the favorite. And this favoritism thing crops up, it seems, over and over again in the book of Genesis. So he's loved more than any of his brothers because he's the son of his old age. He, He was born to Rachel, you remember, late in life, and she's been waiting and waiting to bear a son, and she finally bears a son with the help of the Lord, and she bears Joseph. And she's only going to bear one other child. And so this child means a lot to him. So he makes him a robe of many colors. That doesn't necessarily mean a multicolored robe. It can actually be translated a, a long robe that goes down to the ankles and down to the, to the wrists. It's, it's a long flowing robe. It's obviously meant to be special. His brothers are going to see that it's special. Uh, Joseph wears this thing, it seems, everywhere because he knows it's special. That's going to irritate his brothers. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff going on in the story. It says, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully of him. Now think about that. We've seen some dysfunctional families. This this family is going to take the cake probably, but these brothers hate him so much because he's favored by their father. He's got this special little robe that they want to kill him. Now, I had two older brothers, and at one point, we lived in a fairly small house, and we, the three of us shared a room together. They had bunk beds on one side of the room, and I had a little bed on the other side of the room, and my brothers put duct tape down the middle of the room, and I was not allowed to cross that duct tape into their side of the room, and if I did, I got a beating. Now, one was six years older than me, one was nine years older than me, so I never crossed the duct tape, and... It got so bad that eventually my mom and dad moved me into their room to to save my life, you know, because I was constantly getting the snot beat out of me by my brothers because I touched something or I crossed the tape. I hated my brothers. I never thought about killing them, but I did hate my brothers more often than not. But these guys want to kill their brother. They're so jealous of him that they want to take his life. This is not just, we don't like you. Don't cross the tape. Don't come into our side of the room. We don't want anything to do with you. No, they want to kill them. And we're going to see that live itself out in this story. They're dysfunctional. Why are they dysfunctional? I'm going to blame most of it on their father. Like so many of these these guys in the scriptures, they're just lousy fathers. Isn't it interesting that every Mother's Day, we can seem to find plenty of women to preach a sermon about as models of how to be a godly woman? Good luck finding a man. Good luck finding a godly father in scripture. It's like they don't exist. So we always have to just go to God. Well, God's our father. Nothing wrong with that, but why can't we find a godly father in the scriptures? Well, I'm going to blame most of this on Jacob. He's learned nothing from what favoritism can do to a family. Remember, he was favored by his mother and his brother was favored by his dad and it just imploded the family. He's learned nothing from that. And what he's done is he's created this atmosphere of hostility because he's shown more love to one son over the others. He's got 13 kids. I've got six. 
They're all adults now, but when they were all at home, there was always some kind of sibling rivalry going on. And I knew I couldn't afford to show favoritism to one over the other. Now, they thought I probably was at times, but he's got 13 kids, and he's chosen to take one of them and blatantly show favoritism to the point of treating him differently, using him as a, as a stool pigeon to go check on his brothers and come back and report. That's like a wrong thing to do to your kid. He's given him a special robe, and he's favored him over everybody else, and he's created this atmosphere of hostility. It's Jacob's fault. Now, I've put this in your, your notes, but this is the kind of the family tree of Jacob, of, of where these kids came from. You remember, he's got Leah and Rachel, those two sisters. Leah's the ugly one who he got pawned, had her pawned off on him, and then he got to marry Rachel, and they're going to produce children. And this is the, the order of the children, how they're born. And you're going to see that the, the two we're going to talk about are Joseph, who's the 12th born, and Judah, who's the fourth born. One's born to Leah, one's born to Rachel. And chapter 37 and 38 are going to unpack these two men's lives. But there's 13 kids in total that we're going to see impacted by this favoritism that Jacob shows. And it's going to create this animosity that leads to hatred of such a level that they're going to want to kill their own brother, take his life, murder him. That's what this leads to. And so we're going to look at these two sons, Judah, and we're going to look at Joseph. And here's what's interesting. In these two chapters, both are going to suffer. And they're going to suffer, but for different reasons. Joseph's is seemingly undeserved. Yes, I think he's a little bit of an irritant. He's a little obnoxious, but he really doesn't deserve what's going to happen to him. Judah, his suffering is self-inflicted. Most of my suffering in my life, if I'm honest, is self-inflicted. I may shake my fist at God and go, why? But I can look back and go, because I. I did something really stupid. I made a bad decision. And so we're going to see in Judah's life that most of what he suffers is going to be something he did to himself. And yet in both of their lives, and I want you to see this, God is in complete control. God is in control. His sovereign will is going to be done in Joseph's life. And we know that story, but it's also going to be done in Judah's life. And we're less familiar with his story of what God is going to do through this guy who makes some really unwise decisions and suffers for it. And yet God's going to redeem it for his glory. So let's look at this. As I said earlier, brothers is a theme that goes all throughout the book of Genesis, all the way back to the early chapters. You have Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam. You've got Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah. We've looked at Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, those three brothers who moved from Ur all the way up to Haran, and only Abraham ended up in Canaan. We've looked at Isaac and Ishmael, the sons of Abraham. We've looked at Jacob and Esau. So we've seen these repetitive emphases on brothers. And it, it's almost always that one of them is the black sheep and one of them is the chosen one. One goes south and the other one kind of goes north. They, they, they don't mirror one another necessarily. They're, they're almost like negatives. There's a positive and a negative going on. And we're going to see that today as we look at these two brothers. Here's what's interesting, and we've, we've looked at this, looked this over the last few weeks. 
God has chosen to work through these different brothers. And out of them come all these people groups, these nations. And this is fascinating. Edomites, Ammonites, Midianites, Canaanites, Moabites, Ishmaelites, all come from these brothers. And here's what's interesting. Almost all of them come from the negative side, the unchosen brother, the brother whom God didn't choose to work through, through Ishmael and Ham, these brothers who erred, who took the wrong path, who didn't follow after God. And all of these people groups become the enemies of Israel. And it's going to continue on, not just through the book of Genesis, but all the way into the latter portions of the book of Exodus and then Numbers and Deuteronomy as the people prepare to go into the land. And then all the way into the book of Joshua as the people do go into the land and actually run into these people. They become the enemies of Israel. It's all from these brotherly relationships that don't seem to be going very well. But again, it's why? It's God's sovereign plan. The nation and the nations, the goy and the goyim. He's working out his plan. Now, here's where it really gets interesting in this story, that Joseph has these dreams. Remember, we said weeks ago that there's, there's going to be dreams all throughout the book of Genesis, and they're going to pick up the pace as we go through this particular section of the book. As Joseph begins to have these dreams, and they're kind of different dreams. They're not the same kind of dreams we've seen earlier where God has appeared to Jacob, and he sees these angels going up and down the ladder. You remember that story? This is different. It's not God appearing to Joseph in these dreams. It's God revealing something to Joseph in these dreams. And it's going to cause him a lot of heartburn and heartache because he chooses to share it with his brothers. So what does it say? Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Now, I knew enough after several years living in a room with my brothers that there were certain things I didn't do, certain things I didn't say, or I got beat up. Joseph doesn't seem to have learned that yet. He doesn't quite understand that it's probably better to keep your dream to yourself. Instead, he tells it, and they hate him even more. And he, then he goes, hear my dream. I want to tell you my dream. And he already knows the content of the dream, and you're going to know when he shares it why they're going to be even more upset when they hear it. Hear this dream that I have dreamed. And they're going to get more and more upset with him. Now, I'm going to blow through these two dreams because they're important, but it's more important to understand that what is God revealing? What is God showing? What is God trying to tell Joseph and Jacob and his brothers? Both of these dreams are positive, but they're going to produce a negative. They're going to turn into a nightmare, a nightmare for Joseph. When he first hears them, sees them, experiences them, he's going to see them as positive. I don't know that he fully understands the full import of them, but they're going to turn out negative for him. And again, I think he's kind of spoiled. I think he's kind of uh, used to getting his own way, and dad loves me more than you, and he's got this special robe. But he doesn't quite understand that if I share this with my brothers, it's going to set them off. But he goes ahead and does it. And he shares two different dreams, two different dreams that are going to cause him a lot of heartache. He says, we were out in the field, you and me, brothers, tying up bundles of grain, and suddenly my bundle stood up. 
and your bundles all gathered around and bowed down to mine. Now, you don't have to be a necromancer um, or a, a, a medium to understand what this dream is saying. And the brothers hear it and they go, are you nuts? Are you think we're going to bow down to you, little snot-nosed idiot? That ain't going to happen. And I, I don't know how much of this Joseph understood, but I think he was smart enough to understand that them bowing down to him in the form of sheaves made him look pretty good. And they don't like it. Well, what's the second one? He's bold enough to tell them the second dream. Listen, I haven't had another dream. The sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed low before me. Now, again, you don't have to be a genius, a biblical scholar to understand what's going on here. The sun, the moon, the stars. 11 stars. How many brothers does he have? 11. Sun and moon. Mother, father. Everybody's going to bow down to me, including mom and dad. And once again, they don't, they don't like it. Things don't turn out well because he's decided to share these two dreams with the, two, the, the 11 brothers who hate his ever-living guts. It says they hated him all the more. Why? Because of his dreams. Not just that he's favored, not just because he's got the special coat, but because he's had these two dreams where he believes they're going to bow down to him. And they're like, no way. And even his dad gets on his case. It says his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that? I'm okay with the brothers bowing down to you, but your, your mother and I are going to bow down to you? There's no way. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? Now, what do we know? Yes, you will. Because we know how the story is going to end up. But they don't know that yet. They don't know anything about the future. But what's this picturing? It's picturing God revealing his sovereign will to these people, and they don't like what they're hearing. No way. No way we're going to do this. And they're jealous of him because of what they've heard. But his father, it says, kept these things in his mind. He's pondering them. I wonder what this means. See, Jacob's had dreams before. Jacob has learned a lot about the sovereign will of God. And I think he's wrestling with, I don't like the dream. I don't want to bow down to one of my kids. But what if God's doing something? So he's wrestling, but the, the brothers are adamantly opposed to anything like this ever taking place. So look at verse 13. The brothers are out and, and gone. They're, they're out pasturing. So he's going to take Joseph, who's 17 years old, and he says, are not your brothers pasturing flock at Shechem? Remember Shechem? Shechem's where Levi and Simeon murdered all the Shechemites because Shechem raped their sister. Where are they? They're back in Shechem, where they murdered every male who lived in the city. They've set up shop there. They've got grazing land there. For some reason, they've gone back to Shechem. And he says, I'm going to send you to them. Jacob calls his son, his favorite son, in his really classy robe. And he says, I'm sending you off to Shechem to find your brothers. And he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. What's he saying? Report on your brothers. Give me information about what they're doing and how it's going. Jacob seems to be totally clueless that they all hate this kid. And yet he's sending him right out into the fire. Come, do what I tell you. I'm going to send you to go check on your brothers. And here's what jumps out at me. 
All through this chapter, all through this story, this portion of Joseph's life, he's simply doing what his father's telling him to do. He's obedient. His dad says, get up and go, and he goes. He's probably at least a little bit aware of that, hey, dad, they don't really like me. He just says, okay, I'll go. He's obeying the will of his father. Wear, wear this coat, bask in my favor, be my favorite. Go to Shechem. It's about 60 miles to the north. He's gonna take a long journey by himself to go check out his brothers. And then he's gotta come back and report. Tell me what they're doing. And what's he do? He doesn't argue, he doesn't debate. He just goes, okay, he goes. He's doing the will of his father, but he's gonna become a victim of his brother's jealousy. Think about that. This guy is obedient. He may be obnoxious. He may be a little full of himself, but he's obedient to what his father tells him to do, and he's going to suffer for it. Suffer for it severely. He doesn't know about it. Jacob doesn't know about it, but that's what's going to happen. So what happens? He makes the journey, and they see him. They see him from afar. It's probably because of this special robe he's got, got going on. They see him, and it says, before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Now think about the, the level of animosity and hatred these guys have for their brother that they're conspiring, they're beginning to talk about how do we kill him? What means do we kill him by? And they're probably thinking, I want to do it. No, Judy, you don't get to do it. I'm going to do it. Reuben says, I'm the oldest. You don't get to do it. I'm going to kill him. They're, they want to kill their brother. And they said, here comes this dreamer. Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Let's murder our brother and then throw him into an empty cistern meant to collect water. That's how much they hate their brother. That's how bad this has gotten. They want to kill Joseph. Now, again, is God in control? If, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, you have to step back and go, this doesn't make sense. I don't like the way the story's going, but God knows what he's doing. And he's involved in every one of these situations that are taking place. Here's what jumps out at me. We know that Jacob's name has been changed to Israel. Israel can be translated, let God rule. And we've seen he has a problem letting God rule. Guess what? So do his boys. They want to rule. What were the dreams that they were told? You're going to bow down to your younger brother. What do they want to do? They want to kill their younger brother. Whether they got it or not, whether they realized it was divine or not, they don't like that scenario. And so they're going to take control and they're going to solve the problem their way. They're the sons of Israel, let God rule. And yet they want to do things according to their plan, according to their will to accomplish their chosen objective. They're not going to bow down. They're not going to bow down to Joseph, they're not even going to bow down to their father because guess what? They know that when they kill him, it's going to devastate their father and they don't care. They don't care. And we're going to see in just a second, they're going to lie to their father after they know he's gone because they want what they want. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit and the pit was empty and there was no water and, it, and they sat down to eat. Isn't that fascinating? They do this to their brother, and then they just sit down and have a meal together. Well, we got that done. Good work, guys. Way to go. 
But look at this, they, they stripped him. They, they ripped off that robe. And what they're doing is they're playing God. Their father gave their, their brother that robe. They're taking it off of him. They strip it off of him. They want to be God. It says they conspired against Joseph. They stripped Joseph. They threw Joseph into a pit. And then they're going to sell him to Ishmaelites. Traitors. A, a caravan coming through. This is what they do. And, and you can't look at that and go, well, this is exactly what God wanted them to do. But it's going to happen, and God's going to use it. This is where the sovereignty of God and the free will of man really run head, head on in, into one another. Is God making them do this? No, I don't believe God is. Is God allowing them to do this? Yes, he most certainly is. And he's going to use their natural inclinations, their sinful inclinations to accomplish his divine will. We see it all throughout the scriptures. And then they go back and they report to their father, and he's devastated. He sees that robe covered in animal blood that he thinks is his son's blood. And he says, it's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And then he mourns. He's lost his son. He's devastated. And he goes, I shall go down to Sheol. I'm going to go into the grave mourning the loss of my favorite son. He's, he's totally blown away by what he thinks has happened. Here's what's interesting, though. It says he's going to go down to Sheol. You're going to see this theme of going down in these next verses. It says, meanwhile, the Midianites, Midianites had sold him, Joseph, in Egypt to Potiphar. He's gone down to Egypt. He's been taken down to Egypt. So the father's going down into Sheol, the grave. He, he's, he's in mourning for the loss of his son. Poor Joseph has gone down to Egypt as a slave. And it says in chapter 38, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. There's this movement down. Things are taking a really, really negative turn, and it's going to get worse. Why have we suddenly focused on Judah? What's the point? Why have we moved from Joseph, who's suffering for no fault of his own, and now to Judah? Because you're going to see Judah suffer, and it's all his fault. Look at what it says. He went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hera. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He, he's going to make a decision to leave his family for a period of time, and he's going to go down to a, a region where he doesn't belong. He's going to choose a wife from among whom? The Canaanites. We've seen this before, right? And it says, and she conceived and bore him a son. And he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Now, guys, I'm not a biologist, but we know this takes some time, right? That he's living with this woman for a period of time long enough to bear three sons. She's a Canaanite. She's not of the clan of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it says he's in this place called Chazib. He's in a place where he doesn't belong. He's not among the people of God. He's not among the chosen. He's among the nations. And he's chosen a wife from among the nations, something he was not supposed to do. And here we see, once again, he's living by the slogan, let Judah rule. I want to do my life my way. I want to live my will, not God's will. He's in the wrong place. He's married the wrong, for the wrong reason. And it seems to be out of lust, not necessarily love. And he's fathering in the wrong way. How do I know that? 
well, let's just finish the story. He turns out to be a lousy father, just like his dad, and it's going to cost him dearly. All these decisions he's made going down to Chizib and going into literally physically this woman and bearing three sons is going to turn out really poorly for him. He goes on and says that Judah took a wife for her, one of those sons. One of those sons of Judah is going to get a wife and her name is Tamar, and she's going to play an important role as we move forward. But listen to what it says. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. It's interesting that we see now this progression from going down, going down, and now you've got this grandson of Jacob who's wicked. The son of Judah, born to this Canaanite woman, is deemed wicked by God, and he puts him to death. We don't know why. We don't know what he's done, but he's wicked. Wicked enough that God takes his life. So what happens? Judah takes a wife for him, Tamar, gives him to her, and then God takes that that man's life. Why? Because he's wicked. And then he's going to give Tamar, the widow, to the other brother, the secondborn, Onan. And this is where that little uh, article on Levite marriage is going to come in handy because the role of that brother is to impregnate her so that she can carry on the legacy and the line of the dead brother Ur. So his job is to go into that woman so that she might bear a son and keep on the legacy of the dead, the dead man. But what happens? He don't want to do it. He doesn't want to follow that. And you're going to see now Onan wants to rule. Onan wants to let Onan rule the way Onan wants to do things, and it doesn't turn out well. Onan was not willing to have a child who would be, not be his own heir. So whenever he had intercourse with his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground. Now, I don't think I need to explain what's going on there, right? He doesn't want to do it, so he doesn't consummate it. He he doesn't finish the job. He undermines the whole process. I refuse to follow through on my obligation. And God says, it's wicked. And God takes his life. Two, Two sons now, born to Judah, are dead. For what? Wickedness. Well, it's going to get even worse. Then Judah says to Tamar, his twice-widowed daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house, not his house, but her father's house. You go home, you go back and live with mom and dad, and when Sheila, my youngest son, grows up, gets old enough for marriage, I'll give you to him. And then he can impregnate you so that you can have a son and carry on heir's legacy. For he feared that he would die like his brother's. See, he's not willing to give, him, give her to him yet because he doesn't want to see a third son die. It's like he thinks she's cursed. And so he said, you just go home, and the day will come when I'll give you to my third son. But we're going to see he never intends to follow through on that. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house, and this is where it gets really, really seedy. And you're going to see why Judah is juxtaposed to Joseph in these chapters. He's driven completely by fear and not by faith. He has no intention of following through with his commitment, of keeping the Levite marriage vow, of giving his son, his youngest son, to Tamar. So he's deceived her. He's lied to her. Here's that pattern of deception that began with Jacob and is carrying now on with his descendants. And he's going to leave her. He's going to leave this woman twice widowed with no hope. No heir and no hope for the future. He's willing to do that. 
and it's going to lead to someplace really dark. Look at what happens. Tamar's going to get desperate because she knows if I don't get a husband, if I don't bear a son, I have no hope for the future because women have no place or role in society at that time. They have no rights. It all comes through the male. So she's going to deceive her father-in-law. And she's, in doing so, she's going to expose that, he, expose that he's a liar. He, he is deceptive. He can't be trusted. And he's immoral. So what, what she's doing is she's going to force him to keep the vow, the Leverite vow. And it's really interesting how she does it. It tells us that she dresses up as a prostitute and she goes to the city gate and Judah shows up. His wife has just recently died and he shows up and he's thinking, you know, it's been a while since I've had some female companionship. He sees this woman and he goes into her, not knowing that it's his daughter-in-law. She's wearing a veil and he gets her pregnant. But he gives her some gifts, some things to keep so that when he shows back up with her payment, he'll know which one of the prostitutes it is. You see all the deception going on? She's deceiving, he's deceiving. All this is going on. And three months later, this is what's fascinating. Judah's told Tamar's pregnant. And he goes, burn her. He thinks she's committed an immoral act. What has he done? He slept with a prostitute, not just a prostitute, but a cult prostitute of a pagan religion. But he hears she's pregnant and he says, burn her. And that's when she brings out these three gifts that he gave her. And she goes, it was you, dad. You did this to me. And he says, oh, she's more righteous than I am. And you read that story and you go, how does this have anything redeeming to it? What good could come out of this? A man going into a woman he thought was a prostitute. Well, that's certainly not redeeming. Then he finds out he got his daughter-in-law pregnant. Well, that's not redeeming. Or is it? What, what's God doing here? He is working his sovereign will out in spite of everything going on in the story. He knows exactly what's going on. It's sad, it's kind of sordid, it's seedy, it's nasty, the stuff going on in these two chapters, and yet they are going to end extremely well. Look at this. Two more brothers get born. She's pregnant. She's going to have twin brothers. And out of those twins, something incredible is going to happen. It says, when the time came for Tamar to give birth, it's discovered she's carrying twins, Perez and Tara, or Zara. Now, again, we read these and we go, okay, wonderful. A couple of more twins. What's going on here? They're probably not going to get along and it's going to be more of the same. No, there's something really incredible going on here. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. You don't need to turn there, but I'm going to put it up on the screen. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. What's it telling us? Perez is in the family tree of the Messiah. Wait a minute, Ken. He went into her thinking she's a prostitute, not knowing it's his daughter-in-law. He gets her pregnant through an act of immorality, and you're telling me Perez is going to be in the family tree of Jesus? No, I'm not telling you that. Matthew is. 
It's amazing. And Perez is the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab. And it goes on and on, all the way down to Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And guess who comes from David the king? Jesus Christ, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. See, what, what jumps out at me in this whole story, guys, is that God knows what he's doing. Perez is in the family tree of our Savior and our Lord. Here's what God did. He redeemed the wickedness of Aaron Onan. He redeemed the deceit of Tamar. He redeemed the immorality of Judah. He took what man meant for evil and he brought good out of it. And that phrase is gonna become increasingly more important as we move forward. All the stuff that's gonna happen to Joseph, God is going to redeem. See, that's what this is about. It's not just about these sordid details of these stories. It's about the sovereign God of the universe working out his divine plan for the redemption of mankind, redeeming our worst acts for his glory and our good. So here's your discussion questions. I want you to share a time when God redeemed your unrighteous actions for your own good and his glory. Now, this is gonna take some honesty, some openness, but every one of us has a story where God redeemed something really sordid that we did and brought good out of it. Just share that. How could belief in God's sovereignty over all things change the way we view the circumstances of life? When you go out today and something negative happens or you get a bad report from the doctor or whatever it is, it's on the news that you can go, my God is in full control at all times. How will that help you view that? Finally, go, go back and read Romans 8.28. How do these two stories support the claim that Paul makes in that, this passage? And it's where he says, all things work together for good to those who love the Lord. How do we see that lived out here? Well, Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for your word. And I pray as we talk around the tables that you would open up our, our hearts and our lips, that we would share openly, honestly, transparently, and that we would allow our stories to resonate among each other's lives. But more than anything else, Father, would we walk away from here committed to the fact that you are sovereign over all. You are in complete control and you are working your plan to perfection and I can't screw it up. Even my worst actions on my worst day, you can redeem. That doesn't excuse it. That doesn't give me liberty to do whatever I wanna do. But Father, that I would realize that you are in control at all times and I can rest in that fact. Thank you, Father. And we pray all of this in Christ's name, amen.